0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today to discuss the NatWest Six Nations finale are Ireland's Malcolm O'Kelly, Scotland's Doddy Weir and Wales' Michael Owen, plus... We were reflecting on the wins tournament with commentator Nick Heath. The first, I'm joined in the studio, as I have been for the whole competition, by former England and Lions fly half Rob Andrew. Uh, you just told me, Rob, that you've got back to South Africa, and I'm insanely jealous. <laughs> Presumably, you saw the game, the Grand Slam game, from afar, and that was probably the best way to view it, frankly.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I'm involved in cricket now, Brian, as you know, so yeah. I had to go on the pre-season tour as to, you do, uh, yeah. to Cape Town, yeah, um, yeah. so I had to sit in the uh, waterfront um, watching the snow come down at Twickenham yeah. and 25 degrees in Cape Town. With a
1: 24 rand exchange rate. Yeah, it's Making gone down a bit, actually. As it was it mind. now, 22, it about it?
2: 15, oh, so it's the, yeah. pound, the pound has collapsed since Brexit. No, so, I see. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, look... Where do you start really? Uh, well
1: start I'll tell you what we should start from by saying that Ireland thoroughly deserved the championship. They were the best and most complete team throughout. It's almost pointless speculating what might have happened had not that brilliant last passage of play and Johnny Sexton's goal gone over. Because he can always yeah, say but, that. But, but that just show the fine margins. In this tournament, if Johnny Wilkinson
2: hadn't dropped that goal in 2003, yeah. England wouldn't have won the World Cup. Exactly. So you know, and we've said it all along. Actually, to be to be fair, that this is a very, very, very good Ireland team. Ooh. Very well coached, uh, strength in depth, and as we've said all the way through, key key players in the spine, world class of halfbacks. the team. Um, good
1: fullback, Rory Best, leader at hooker, back row balanced. Any number of players available. The A most important thing, rowers. yeah, the most important thing though for Ireland is that the depth they've now got genuine depth. They're not yet, I don't think, at the absolute maximum ideal of three genuine challengers for each position, which is what you want, but they're getting close to that.
2: Yeah, they are getting close. And do you ever get that close, really? Um, well, if, if, you, even, you, can, if you, you can, that's
1: ideal, but you know,
2: everybody talks about it, but. But who really does have three that you can play, replace yeah, in every They're position.
1: all fit on former experience. Absolutely. What can you say about England other than it was predictable? And predictable in this way. Although the penalty count was not as bad as it has been in previous games, the fact is that there were still key moments of indiscipline which had big ramifications. Witness the first one. We wouldn't have had. The TMO, wrongly in my opinion, judging that Rob Carney didn't knock the ball on, had Owen Farrell not followed through with a challenge which he must have known, at best he was going to catch him after he kicked the ball. He wasn't going to get man and ball. He thought maybe, you know, I'll leave a mark. In consequence, you don't have Elliot Daly running in broken field in the Irish half. You have a penalty on the 15, which they kicked into the England half from which the line-out came, from which the kick came from Sexton, from which the try, however it was awarded, came. Had that not happened, later on, still early in the first half, Ireland under pressure, not a very good box kick, would have meant that England had a line-out deep in Irish territory. Murray Toji trying to charge the ball down, Stray's a yard offside, and he was offside, didn't charge the ball down anyway. Turnover in terms of a penalty, kick back, pressure off. These things have happened too often, and you know I don't know what the solution is. Bar saying you're not picked, you'll find I, I, I am I'm lost to know what to do about it.
2: But it wasn't like that when under the Eddie when he first came in. He's they got that sense of discipline into the team early on. Much they, but they found ways, and they weren't playing brilliantly through all those twenty three wins out of twenty five. But they found ways of of staying in games, they found ways of defending when they needed to defend and be disciplined, um, kicking goals when they needed to, and just getting out of trouble, which good sides do. Mm. they're now getting into trouble and actually don't look like getting themselves out of trouble. Now that's the flip that seems to have happened. And it, it you know it can be confidence, um, selection starts to undermine things a little bit, but something has flipped from the sim- same sort of group of players, and they now haven't looked like... I mean, they could have lost to Wales as well in, in the game at Twickenham. Mm. Very nitty did. And then you you could be looking at a defeat against everybody bar Italy. So I th- I th- it's a really interesting one, this, because it, it looks like Eddie couldn't do anything wrong when he first came in around his selections and just making England look like they knew how to win games. And then all of a sudden, it now looks like you sort of can't do anything right. Um,
1: the truth, as always, though, is somewhere in between, isn't it? I never subscribed to the fact, and I was very careful to write that England still had much work to do, irrespective of how long that winning streak was going on. I was always keen to do that because I could see that the same deficiencies in terms of selection for the back three, the centres and the back row, were always there, yeah. haven't gone away, if they are solved, if the breakdown and the technique of the breakdown is solved and then the discipline, and these are things which should be soluble. Yeah. Sean Fitzpatrick, I was speaking to him and he said, you know what, the unfortunate thing is, from everyone else's point of view, that these problems have occurred when there's just enough time, just about, to put them right. It would have been far better for everyone else, he said, It'd if they'd occurred just before year. the World Cup next year. So that is a point which you do have to take into consideration. Having said that, Eddie Jones still has to solve them. And to do that, he has to make some hard decisions. He has to look at the efficacy of his coaching team. The defence, which was one of the major features, although the try count in the six nations against them wasn't massively uh, untoward, it still was uncomfortable for me to watch the way they were unlocked in certain games by the good sides. Mm. You know, the way they were unlocked on the outside um, uh, against Scotland, and then when you come to Twickenham and they'd obviously decided to play the wingers higher, the fact that Ireland anticipated that you know with the kicks, and one of the things about the Watson thing was how isolated he was
2: yeah, and I think that's you know they've been unlocked actually by just about everybody, as, as we said, even Italy in the first game over in Rome when Italy got round the outside twice yeah um, and it just looks and feels as if so many little things are going wrong all across, all across the team. And that's you can put those things right, but, you've, but it's almost like they've got to go back to basics and, yeah. and, and just focus really hard on the next job with the right player in the right position. Go back to sort of thinking about what's required for this game. And, and it struck me, one of the, when Eddie first came in, all he really talked about was the next game what do we have to do for the next game, the next tour? We're going to Australia to win. We're playing Scotland in his first game, which was up there. And that's all he ever talked about. And there has been a shift probably in the last six months. In the autumn, they experimented a bit post-Lions. And there's almost been a little bit of post-Lions excuse to say we're experimenting now. We're sort of thinking we're still on the journey to 2019, but we're not focusing on winning. And I know we've got to have this debate about, how do you develop while still winning? But it just looks like their performances are not hard enough on, you know, what do we have to do? We're going up to Scotland to play a really good Scotland side. If you don't start well at Murrayfield, you put yourself on the back foot.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, you, it's a lot more difficult to develop if you're losing because of the pressure that comes on. If you're winning, at least you've got the comfort of that continuing, you've got the psychological effect and you're from a position of strength. Let's uh, move on a little bit about this. The questions that have come in from some of the listeners, uh, one relates to the Premiership, how much is the Premiership to blame? You know, I was on Twitter and someone said, the final table proves to me that the Pro 14 is a spirit competition you look at all Celtic sides. I simply said, well, England won it two years before and they had the European champions both years, so... What does that tell you? Absolutely nothing on one season. Old um, Tom, should we calm down a bit and see where England are after the autumn internationals?
2: Yeah, look, I think you've always got to be careful with this. You can, it's like you said earlier when England won twenty three out of twenty five. There weren't world beaters in all those games, and a lot of the games, you know, they they found ways of winning, which is a good trait to have. So you've got to have a, you've got to have that. But equally, when you start. On a, yeah, and they've played badly this this Six Nations, no question of that. And so, understanding what has happened to to cause that, and I mean, Eddie's been around the block enough times to know what's going on. He's now got to fix those issues, and he's got to find out in his own head what are the. I mean, we've talked about discipline, we've talked about the breakdown, we've talked about selection and key positions, and there is a danger that that there's a bit of Groundhog Day here repeating itself around those key areas. So he's got to take a hard look at that because there are good players in England and when they're, when they're um, on top of their game and there's too many of them not on top of their game at the moment. And well, I not- think
1: uh, you, probably only Chris Robshaw, maybe Joe Launchbury, has performed anywhere near what we've seen before. Let's just deal with this issue. The post-Lions fatigue, people are saying, well, everyone else went oh, on the Lions tour. But unarguably, and this is reflected by hard fact, the England players have played the most minutes post that and they look flat. Now, I don't know whether that's the case of them looking flat, but all I would say is they look flat in the club games as well. And I understand that Eddie's sessions are hard, maybe misjudged in the terms of post-Lions. But what I, the thing I put into is, if you go forward and this happens... Again, clubs are not going to wear this much longer and neither is the RFU. But what you do about it is a different matter.
2: Well, we've been talking about that for 20 years. So, you know, you've got a system in England that everybody talks about central contracts, everybody talks about the players need resting. But, you know, unless the clubs are going to hand the players back to the RFU and say, there you go, you pick which ones you want, put them on central contracts and it's all fine. You can rest them as long as you like, which is what happens in Ireland Wales are trying to go down that road with their dual contracts. And it's a
1: sensible route. Of
2: course it is. If you are, if you are an international player um, and you are playing this modern game and you're, you're going on a Lions tour, then you come straight back and you have to play in September and then you play the Autumn Internationals. To be fair to Eddie, he tried to give them a rest through the Autumn Internationals. The Irish boys, they come back and Joe Schmidt says to Johnny Sexton, right, you're not playing till October. And then when you start in October, you can play a couple of games, but then that's it. That system England don't have. So it's, we've got to be careful not to make excuses because we'll get accused of just making excuses, but it is a fact that the system is different. Wales are trying to get their players back home and get them under dual contracts. And the modern game, you look how many players are injured and fatigued, it is undoubtedly a factor. Is it the only factor... In this England no, no, it's performance, it's not. But it's one of, like all things, this is multifactorial, isn't mm-hmm. it? And lots of things have gone wrong and it's meant that England have not been anywhere near their best. I mean, uh, they talk about 2 or 3% off. It's, they're miles off their yeah. best from what we've seen of some of these players. There's some outstanding players here who went toe-to-toe with the, with the All Blacks in New Zealand last summer. So they, it will come back. There's, there's some really good players there. Are there enough world-class players to go toe-to-toe with New Zealand? And, and Ireland is sort of heading in that direction now over the next 18 months. Wales have got strength in depth. On, on, on any given day, yeah, I think there are. If, if they're all in the right shape physically and mentally, there's a lot of mental stuff in this as well, which, which you know has sort of come home to roost a little bit with this, with this Six Nations So it's now down to Eddie to find
1: the answers. Time now to speak to some man who will be very happy given the holy trinity of Irish wins over the weekend. Cheltenham decimated the Brits. Twickenham and then Rory McIlroy in the Arnold Palmer invitation. Former Ireland player Malcolm O'Kelly. Hello, Malcolm. How are you? I'm, I'm all right, mate. It's, right. not, it's not a bad weekend to be Irish, is it?
3: It has been incredible. It's been incredible. Um, now, my focus has been on the rugby. Yep. Uh, I was actually over at the match, uh, played the over-35s match, would you believe? Oh. But, um, uh, yeah, it was tasty enough as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And uh, the country is really on a high at the moment.
1: What? Is the feeling about how far this team can go?
3: Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. Uh, I, from I think from what I've watched and, and what most people watch is that the public still think that there's another gear in, the, in, in these guys. Um, it, it, it kind of, like I, I look back to 2009 Grand Slam, which I was involved in. And we scraped over every match, and we did we did two two we would call that probably heavier hitters in England and France at home, um, and we scraped home. Uh, this Irish team, were, were, it seemed so much more comfortable, uh, so much more in control of their own destiny uh, than than uh, we were ten years ago, and you kind of think they could do this next year. You know, uh, and with, with, with the confidence that uh, Joe Schmidt has has given these boys, um, they honestly believe in him so much that uh, they they go and do his bidding and they'll come on top. Uh, Jacob Stockdale, for instance, he's I think he's got uh, eight caps. His first cap was uh, in November, and he hasn't lost a match for Ireland. Um, he scored about ten or eleven tries. That's unbelievable for an like certainly as an Irish international, uh, you know, to have never lost a match and gone through a Six Nations ten a November series, <laughs> is quite incredible. Uh, so yeah, the, like the country's on a high, uh, the team is just uh, is just fine But as much as as well as you know and Rob knows about rugby, is that it is it is the finest of detail. Mm-hmm that uh, that separates the side and sometimes if you look at that match um, you can say there's a whole, a whole a multitude of things that may be going wrong in England uh, and a, a whole multitude of things that are going right in Ireland but still there was a case of a bounce of a ball and a tap tackle that kind of separated uh, the sides in the first half like for for Ireland to go in at 20, 21 points rather than 14 points is you know a huge factor, and really the game was over at that stage. And uh, you know, uh, Keith Earls to tap tackle and stop at English try uh, was huge. You know, so those kind of two little two little plays, you know, was the difference between you know possibly fourteen all, and uh, or uh, you know or ten ten fourteen or you know twelve fourteen or. As opposed to twenty-one-five, and the game is over.
2: Malcolm, hi, it's Rob here. Um, it, hi, it's, Rob. Hi, uh, it, Brian and I have talked quite a lot through the whole championship, and 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 I, what I like about the Ireland team, and I'm a bit old old school in this way in terms of the spine of a side, and and the key men sort of being there most of the time on the field, and and giving the confidence around the direction of where the team is on the field, what the next call is. Um, and just making those really big calls and those big plays that get made through the spine of a side. Uh, And and that has a massive impact in allowing the team to move around the field in a comfortable way and then these younger players to come into a side um, when the sort of things are on the front foot for them. And that feels from the outside, that's where Joe's got the team, where he really wants it at the moment with some, you know, arguably, we said all tournament, the, the possibly the best halfbacks in the world at the moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely spot on. Murray and Sexton have, uh, you know, the fact that they've been on the pitch the whole time has been, uh, it's been no surprise that Ireland have had that kind of control and dominance. Um, And uh, Joe Joe puts a lot of faith in, in these guys and he has developed these guys over the years like uh, he's, he's he's had Conor Murray for four or five, uh, for, since his tenure four or five years and he has developed hugely under him and uh, Sexton two had him in Leinster so he's been seven years under Joe mm-hmm. Um so they know exactly what he wants uh and you're right, like we had a crisis uh, this this season in at second center and we did those uh, ring was the third uh, second center to come in yet uh each of them arguably was better than the than the than the man they they replaced. The fact that they come in any new player young player that comes in seems to be really clear and uh, of, of what what his roles and responsibilities are. Um, that, you know, they can their, their uh, potential and their ability has a chance to shine because everyone knows what they're doing.
1: Malcolm, the, the, the final question, and probably the most important one, given now the World Cup is the final arbiter of everything internationally, whether you like it or not, mm. Ireland's yeah. World Cup record is not good. It really isn't. Could certainly... When you look at the teams they've had before that have gone into several tournaments as dark horses, whatever phrase you like to use, yeah. they're going to go in yeah. this time. Should go in as one of the teams that has a genuine chance of winning. I'm not saying they'll be favourites, but that must be mm-hmm. the thing. How? Why will it? Why should it be different this time to the previous times?
3: No, oh, there's no guarantee that it will be any different no, course. But yeah. I think what Joe has been looking to build on from from the last World Cup was uh, what I suppose ended Ireland's run was was the we played uh, played France in, in in a qualifier match and we lost I think about six of our senior players including Paul O'Connell Peter O'Madney and a whole host of others. Um, and then we came up against Argentina, we had to have six new players come in and uh, we we just we play we played completely within ourselves and never got out of the blocks and mm-hmm. lost that match and that was a, a quarter final exit. Um, and there's been so much hope and, and, and it's the same in the in, in, in the world prior to that as well. Big performance not followed up. So I, I think this time round Joe has really worked on trying to build a squad. Mm-hmm um so there's a lot of uh younger guys getting blooded um and given real experience uh like at Six Nations rugby as well as November internationals so um for him i think the key is to have enough depth so that um if worse came to worst and uh injuries that are inevitable that he's got the ability to to bring in guys and the, the uh you know, the team's performance is unaffected.
1: I think you've identified exactly the point, and I think you're right. Can I just say congratulations mm-hmm. from this side of the water? Thoroughly deserved. Thank you very much, Malcolm.
3: Brian, Rob, thanks very much. Only our third one in our, in our history. Yeah. So, you know, great. A great time uh, for Irish rugby, and hopefully uh, plenty more victories for Ireland in the future. I'm sure you'll want to. <laughs> for-
1: <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, well Great. done. Thank you. Right, right, right. Would it be churlish to say we've got three each? But no, no, it of course it would be churlish. <laughs> Just one point, actually, before we speak to Doddy Wade to get a Scottish perspective. Joe Schmidt, Malcolm rightly identified that he's had the tutelage over Colin Murray and Jonathan Sexton for more than a, a World Cup. And what's becoming quite clear to me, you know, bar New Zealand maybe, the... Ability to go through one World Cup cycle, learn the lessons and be kept in the role really helped the coach for the following one. The problem is the accusations of rewarding failure and yeah. so on, which we avoided with Clive Woodward. And I must admit, I wasn't in favour at the time, but subsequently he was wrong. There's quite a lot in it. Uh, Eddie won't last if he has a poor World Cup though, so that's probably by in the sky. Time to speak from a Scottish perspective. The former Scotland and Lions lock, Doddy Weir, is with us. Doddy, hello. Brian Roberto, very good evening. <laughs> yeah, you sound very chipper, thank you. yeah. yeah. I've been
4: waiting a long time for this one. Yeah, moment. I bet it's you have. Yeah, yeah. Ten we, have, years we, have, we haven't. <laughs> we haven't. have more of your guests, Mr. Rob Andrew. Absolutely brilliant because we spent a bit of time at that lovely match maybe some three weeks ago and uh, you've never seen someone smile uh, so much after the game.
2: We haven't got long, Doddy, so we'll, <laughs> we'll have to get you
4: off soon. Tell you
1: what, first of all, Doddy, how are you? I'm
4: uh, very well. Yeah, not too bad. Just, I was away with the. I was in Italy supporting the boys uh, at the weekend so we've been jaded from that, but uh, otherwise things not too bad
1: Tell us so, about tell us about the, the the March of a Thousand Headbands first, will you? Wow, just unbelievable. Um, Rob Andrew's out.
4: Uh, Rob Andrew. Rob, I've got you in the brain now. I'm still thinking <laughs> about going back to that lovely day when Scotland beat England not that long ago. When you I had a great England day. I had a lovely day with you, Doddy, that day. <laughs> <laughs> it was good meeting up with you. But no, uh, Rob Wainwright, it's uh, Doddy Gump. It was a kind of finale in some ways and, and his idea was to, to get uh, everyone marching to the game and... I think he thought maybe about a thousand people and I think maybe about five turned up, 5,000 people. And wow. and it was wonderful because we spoke to the coaches after the game and the Scotland coach, Gregor Townsend, thought it was amazing because all the bus, the team bus arrived as we were walking to the match and mm. all the boys could see was these Scottish supporters and thought this was absolutely fantastic. We had Conor O'Shea in one hand, all he, all he could see was Scotland supporters and thought there was no one from Italy going to the match. So it was it was quite a spectacular and it was very humble with all these people who very kindly tell us, turned up.
1: Tell us how people can donate.
4: Uh, my name's Doddy. Um, hashtag I think it is and um, website as well. My name's Doddy Foundation and that's a lot of details are on there with forthcoming events and what have you. But it just continues. The, the support has been overwhelming, um, as has been said, for a fashion disaster from Scotland. So yeah. just <laughs> very humble of, of where we are and tear-jerking in some ways of what people are very kindly doing for myself and, but more importantly, for MND to put awareness and trying to get a stop to this horrific uh, issue.
1: Well, you mentioned Gregor Townsend, and he's quoted as saying about Scotland's campaign, he's somewhat satisfied. Is that a bit understated or realistic?
4: Well, I think that that's Gregor. He's very real on where he's wanting the team and how they want to perform. I think at home, the the Scotland team have been outstanding, uh, beating the big nations of France and England. England the first time in, in, in 10 years. That's just a phenomenal victory. Uh, encompassing and just to show how large it is Scotland have two professional te- teams England have a lot more um, and so that victory for the Scottish rugby and the Scottish rugby team is absolutely fantastic but their performance away from home just maybe hasn't been hitting the boil that Gregor would like so that's why I think Gregor is saying what he's saying because the Welsh match to start with is, is probably propelled the boys to do, do well at home because it was a bit of a disaster. Um, but on on that t- third in, in the table, I think is is a very commendable position to be.
2: What do you think it is, Doddy, That because um, you know the, when they're at home and they have been as they were against New Zealand, you know, and Australia, outstanding in those games, fought hard against France um, under a bit of pressure up at Murrayfield. Obviously, we're outstanding against England, particularly in that first half. Um, what is it about this group of players that, that that's needed just to sort of go away from home and play with that same um, same control as well as fire?
4: In some ways, Rob, I think it's maybe a bit of confidence because um, at the moment they're, they're at home they're playing very well and it's maybe a cycle of rugby players. And I think in the Western nations like Scotland, they've got a great team at the moment. They've got a, a fantastic cycle of old boys and young boys coming through. And that's playing an exciting brand of rugby. But just away from home, it could be the opposite effect when the likes of Wales and Ireland are playing at home. They've got this passion, this fortress. Um, and in some ways, it's the whole build up. And I think in the changing rooms, it might be because you know how some of the home change rooms are all very well set up for getting everyone organised, where the way change rooms. Are not they're just little poky, poky rooms Especially in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> Especially whether, yeah. Whether whether that has an effect, whether the supporters or just maybe the culture or the travelling away from home, because they are the same player, and mm. there's no reason why they can't perform away from home. But this year, it just has been a little bit indifferent. But winning your home matches is very special, and it's been a special year. <laughs> Beating, the, beating England for the first time in 10 years. Brian, I don't know if you knew that.
1: Yeah, uh, I didn't that. know that. But yeah, yeah, I, I, well, look, I, We'll give you one every 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> D- Doddy, moving on. Special. Tell you what, the, the summer tour, USA, yeah. Canada, Argentina. Now, on the one hand, you could say that might be a canny way of recording wins abroad um, without the inordinate pressure that comes from New Zealand or South Africa, or you could say, look, these are not the ones you want to go for necessarily before a World Cup. Would you prefer it to be harder or or what do you think about the, the, the tour itself?
4: no I don't think so. I think the hard games as, as we all know as players are, are important maybe to build it up nearer the nearer the World Cup and what I you in the Six Nations you don't get much harder than that because it's a pretty mm-hmm. physical intensive game so in in the summer tours I think it's a chance to try and bring some of the younger players on and possibly give the older players a bit of a break because their bodies will take a bit of a mm-hmm. and, and with that I think that's, that's the way it, will, it, it might be but again I'm not sure how Gregor will I'll take it but uh, it was a shame we spoke to, to Conor O'Shea after the match and for Italy I think the pressure's on the, the, their team to, to go and do quite well in the summer games and where Scotland it could be a chance to yeah do very well but let's try and bring on the next line of players if possible
1: Doddy we've got to leave it there No way Brian No I've no so listen yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you do but uh <laughs> But time has time is beaten, us, as they say. <laughs> uh, mate, look, look. You take care of yourself, and thank you very much.
4: It's always a pleasure. Cheers, boys. Thanks, man. Cheers, Dolly. Take care.
1: Yeah, we genuinely have finished our time on that. I wasn't, you know, to just. You know, I'm quite happy to. to he would have stayed off, for the next
2: 25 minutes. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's
1: the point. And then be the same jokes exactly. But I would say is, look, the, the summer tours. Let's just look at England's one in comparison to that. They go to South Africa. Warren Gatland has helpfully said it might be the precursor to six in a row. (laughs) For me, given what's happened and the way in which some of the players have looked in this one, whilst you don't want to go there and lose, if there is no other option and the form doesn't return of players we know are very good, the Etoji factor, things like that, then... I think, unusually, you know, I'd be recommending that several key players either didn't go or, if they did go, were given restrictive rules.
2: Well, it goes back to a judgment call, doesn't it? A really massive judgment call as well for a head coach to say, right, this is what I'm going to do for this tour with these players and then take the consequences. Because the consequences could be, depending on which way you go, it could be be 3-0. You know, South Africa have got good players. They're in a bit of a mess, but Razzi Erasmus coming in, there'll be a bounce with him coming in as the new sort of boss. Um, They have got talented players if they get some of them back home as well. Even if you go full strength, actually the way England are playing with so-called full strength at the moment, they still might lose 3-0. First test is in Joburg, which is we know what that's like. Um, So this is, again, another big decision which a head coach has to make for the good of the group and for the good of the next 18 months, which is what, what Eddie's paid to do. And, and it's not easy whichever way he goes. And it, he'll be racking his brains between now and the tour.
1: Michael Owen, the former Wales number no. 8, is now here to give us a perspective from the Principality. Michael, good evening.
5: Evening, Brian. How are you?
1: I'm OK. Uh, Wales finished second. Should Warren Gatland be pleased or displeased about that?
5: I think Wales got to be pretty happy, to be honest, with the Championship. I think um, they've led a lot of new players, sort of maybe, maybe their first Championship and stuff, and they, they performed really well on the whole, and I think Wales will be leaving the Championship thinking they've got a, a decent amount of depth and maybe I think Warren Gatlin's quoted a saying about the 2019 World Cup, Wales should be in a better state than they were for the, the 2015 World Cup, with a bit more strength and depth, so... I think that's really encouraging. I think uh, George North looked like, quite resurgent as well, looked back to his best, which was, uh, which was great to see. Um, and I think Lee Halfpenny could probably argue the same as well. So I think it was a really positive championship for Wales, and they'd probably be disappointed they didn't manage to, um, to pinch one of, the, one of the away matches uh, in the championship.
1: Well, I certainly agree with you in terms of letting the new players. One of the points which I made in one of the commentaries was. You know, open side, the options there, Navidi and several other players, you know, England would kill for two of those to be in contention. The other point is this, and this still niggles me a little bit on, you know, vicariously, the fly-half debate, Dan Bigger, a certain type of player, but to me, you can have him there, steady the ship, but the attacking quality that Wales have got now intrinsically... Innately and also developed, the fly-off of Pachel and Anscombe is a different thing and it adds for me a different dimension. What do you think?
5: Yeah, definitely. I really like. I think these Patels is a, is, a, is a great player, and I think he's someone who really could like sort of shape the uh, shape the future around in terms of what he brings as an attack inside. If we're going to try and adopt this. Um, more attacking and bold approach I think he certainly fits the bill there um, I think it's very difficult to discard what Dan Baker brings to the team mind you, um, he really takes his own for the team and he's got a tremendous like as you say the basics really really well um, and he's a very good player but I do think that Reese Paxo just gives way of probably even more than Gareth Hanscom as well for me uh, Reese Paxo really gives away something a little bit different and he, uh, he he gives him that, that ability to, to attack and be a real threat with the ball
2: Michael, hi, it's Rob here. Um, hi, Rob. How are you? The, the, other, the other player, Reese Priestland, is still floating around there as well in, in terms of the, the quality. As, one yeah. of the things for me is, is Gatlin's a canny operator and has been for some time now. And he seems to be changing the way Wales are, are playing slowly. Um, is he, does he sort of, having worked with him and known him, does he know sort of where he's going to be in the next 12 months, 18 months with the way? He'll want Wales to play going into that World Cup because it does look like there's been quite a big shift this this six nations
5: yeah well it certainly looks like he's going to shift i think. but I think like one one thing he does he knows how to how to be successful with his teams and he gets them in a place where they're able to be like really competitive um and and he does what's necessary for them to win so I think you'd be looking at them and see and just walk it and seeing just what is where the best the best chance of doing that and I think the thing that's exciting from a Welsh fan's perspective like talking about the the outside halves and you've got like a real mix of of styles and abilities, so it's really good for, for Wales to be able to maybe change up the game. I know when he started, he sort of played like uh, Stephen Jones at ten, and he'd bring James Hook um, like on off the bench maybe for the last twenty, or maybe playing the other way around. And he he'd sort of used that really well. I think that's maybe something Wales could look to do again. Maybe have like a almost a start in ten, and then have someone who can come on and make it, make a, a real impact in our last sort of twenty minutes, which is when a lot of international games are, are won and lost.
1: Uh, Michael, final question for you. What, uh, if anything, uh, do Wales need to work on most to improve, continue the improvements ahead of the World Cup?
5: I, th- I think it's just probably being uh, clinical. I think they had the, they had the chances against um, against England. And I think uh, when they played that, and so they the two games they lost, the England game and the Ireland game, away from home, mm-hmm. I think they, had all, they were competitive in those matches and they had opportunities to win. And I think it's just being clinical and being able to finish off those those chances when they come. And I think that's probably the, the one thing that uh, the Wales really need to work on, probably like quite a lot of other teams as well. But I think that's the, that's the real big thing, if they can be clinical and take the chances and they feel like they can compete and, and beat anyone on the day.
1: Michael, a contribution much appreciated. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you very much. Rob, let's briefly mention France and Italy, not because we want to dismiss them, but primarily a British uh, audience. I thought France improved game on game. Um, I still don't think they're entirely sure what they want to do within games. But what you can see is that they still, for any faults of the top 14, have quality players that are being developed. They're strong. They're capable. And if they can find some cogency in terms of their overall game, 80-minute contribution, and especially from the halfbacks, then they've got a very good World Cup record as a country. And I wouldn't think they would go there as potential winners, but they should go there uh, in a state which was out of all recognition from what you might have thought at least 12 months ago.
2: Yeah, but... Nothing's changed, has it, no, with the French? No. You know, we could have been having this discussion 25 years ago. Yeah. And, and it's it's the beauty of French rugby. And it's absolutely magnificent when when you see what they're capable of one minute, both good and bad. And, and they, they should have beaten Ireland had it not been for brilliance, mm. you know, from Johnny Sexton and the whole Irish team. Um, and they've always got good players. It's just, you know... Have they got the time with the players to mould, as you just said, a cogent team that can go into a tournament? In World Cups, they do have time together. Mm-hmm. So that actually does help them in one way. There's usually a crisis somewhere in the middle of a World Cup yeah. which sort of galvanises them. So, you know, we don't know who, what's going to cause that, but it's likely to happen, especially in Japan. I mean, goodness knows what could happen.
1: Well, in 2011, I met Olivier um, and he... Said Lee Vermont had been betrayed by the players. They were all for wouldn't do anything. It turned out, and probably with a different referee on a different day, could have won, maybe should have won the World Cup final. So that's a different. Italy, to me, I may not see tremendous find. Uh, boney we didn't see after the first three games, unfortunately, tremendous find. What still bothers me about Italy is the lack of street wiseness when they play. You go into the final couple of minutes needing three points. Halfway line, you have a line out. What you should do, clearly to me, win the ball, you take it, drive it, succession of carries, left and right of the breakdown, but stay central so that the option is there for a drop goal. If you get a penalty, it's in front of the post or no matter how far it is out. Instead of doing that, take the ball far right, eventually there's a breakdown they get penalized but even had they got a penalty it would have been right on the touchline now that to me is a very basic rugby thing and it's disappointing that after so much time that they that that sort of thing doesn't occur to them
2: yeah but but pressure what does pressure do to players we've seen it you know do things to england players who've played a lot of test matches in this tournament so in the end, I think you've just got to um, allow Connor and and, the, and Mike Cat and the coaches to have time with what, as we said right at the beginning of the tournament, looks like some quite talented, young inexperienced players. Parise is sort of standing out almost on his own. He's about the only one left now. Geraldino's Geraldini's with him at Hooker, but you know, there's they've got to go with this next generation. They can clearly play some decent football, um, and those. Game understanding, match understanding, situations—they can talk about that going into the next game. If we're in this situation again, don't do what you've just yeah. done last week. Yeah. You know, this is how you would set it up, and that's just time on the field, time on the on the training field, time in match situations, and you know that their under twenties did a bit better this year as Third, well. Third, I think. So you know, it's it's all those little signs, and there were signs in that first England game oh. of, of of progress. And and they should have beaten Scotland, probably. Um, desperately disappointed, but should have and could have, and it, they're not very useful words. Yeah.
1: Let's just consider another issue for world rugby. Wouldn't necessarily cover this normally, but it has caused a big stir. Spain, Belgium. Now, let me give you the background to this. Um, this is for a World Cup qualifying place, so it is important, and... Spain were going for it. They travelled to Belgium needing a victory. So fix they won 30-0 last year. They needed to finish above Romania and qualify automatically. They'd have joined Pool A, along with Ireland, Scotland and the host Japan. They lost 18-10. The World Cups now rest on defeating Portugal first and then Samoa over a two-leg playoff, which is a very different prospect. The Romanian um, referee, Vlad, the great name, Vlad Lorescu, and his Romanian assistants were appointed before the start of the tournament for this fixture by Rugby Europe, not World Rugby. And there was a blatant conflict of interest because Romania needed Spain to lose, and this appears to have been missed. Now, during the game, Spain were very unhappy about the penalty count. It was uh, 8, well... One estimate regarding penalty count suggested Spain were penalised 18 occasions to seven. Now, that actually is not beyond the bounds of possibility for an actual score. So that itself doesn't say anything. I haven't seen the game, so I don't know how justified these were. But what I would say is the reason you have to avoid conflicts of interest and the reason they're pernicious is that nothing has to happen for them to be effective. And the very fact that people can now say, there might have been an ulterior motive, is enough to put those officials under suspicion, when in reality, actually, there's probably nothing in it. But why the governing body who appointed them just didn't simply change them when they found this out, or even worse, if it didn't even occur to them, which would be, you know, utterly, utterly negligent instead of careless, is simply beyond me.
2: Yeah and it's but it's not fair on the referee either no, it's not exactly. Uh, the touch touches and and the, you know it's uh, it is utterly unbelievable and it probably probably wasn't even recognised that's the worst thing about it yeah. it's that actually oh we've not we've appointed these referees at the start of the tournament this this guy's going to do this game and then instead of recognising on the week of it oh hang on a minute this looks a bit funny we better change this which is what happened to the touch judge Marius van der Veste in the England game because he went into camp with England when he shouldn't have done and, you know, that's the right thing to do. And, and it's for this, this is utterly, it's just ridiculous. for whether, whether the referee was the best referee in the world, mm. he shouldn't have been put in that position.
1: And let's make this plain. For Romania's players and Spain's, of course they want to go to the biggest tournament. Some of them will never get another chance. And that's how important getting these things right is. I just finally can read the World Rugby statement. While World Rugby does not appoint match officials for the Rugby Europe Europe Championship, it is in contact with Rugby Europe to understand the context of events relating to the Belgium versus Spain match in Brussels on Sunday, which doubled as an important Rugby World Cup 2019 qualifier. Well, as the overall body, I think the very minimum should be a very sharp admonishment to say, look, This is such a stupid thing to have done. We don't want this to ever happen again. What I do hope they don't do is drop the referee in it, like they've done on a couple of occasions, which I think is totally unfair. Time to move to the Women's Six Nations with Nick Heath. Now, the final series of games ended like this. Italy 26, Scotland 12, England 33, Ireland 11, Wales 3, France 38, which meant... But France topped the table with 27 and England came second, 21. Ireland and Italy joint third on 10. Scotland and Wales joint bottom or fourth, whatever you would say, on five. This wasn't expected. England were expected to carry this. They were favourites. And Nick, how missed an opportunity, how harshly should we judge England on not securing a Grand Slam?
0: I think when you. Good evening, by the way. uh, Hello to both of you. Um, I I think when you uh, when you look at the resources again, you know it's the old argument that often you know bites England uh, in the behind is when the resources are as strong as they are and the depth of players, it's as strong as it is in England. Then there are questions to be asked if if they're not at the top of the tree. But you know England are are quite keenly. Uh, there is still this element of them chasing glory on two fronts. They, are, you know, they're missing players in the likes of um, Emily Scarrett and Natasha Hunt to the sevens program. So it means that Simon Middleton has got a good opportunity to look at some other players. And it's fair to say that through the Tyrrells Premier Fifteens, there've been some outstanding young talents that have put their hand up and quite rightly were given an opportunity in the autumn. And then we're given an opportunity to continue um, in the squad over the course of the Six Nations. I, I was um, commentating on France, England and Grenoble. I did Wales, Scotland. Uh, and I also did Scotland against France. And, and you know, looking across those games, there's, there, is, there is talent appearing in every nation at a younger age group. Um, and England have it in the likes of Ellie Kildun who is absolutely superb. They've got Shauna Brown who's coming through and, uh, you know, there, there is plenty of potential there. I think, you know, what what's happened with England in, in this Six Nations, you have to accept that no team has a God-given right to go and win every game and they went to Grenoble. There were seventeen and a half thousand people waving the tricolour. It was absolutely incredible. It was brilliant. Um, the likes of Katie Daly-McLean, when I spoke to her afterwards, she said she absolutely loved of the atmosphere. Now there are some players in that side that played an understrength Canada side through November and got three wins. It was pretty easy. Armchair ride. Lovely. Thank you very much. They then got into the Women's Six Nations and they've seen off the likes of Wales easily and Scotland and Ireland who are under par. Um, and they've, they've had a pretty easy ride then. They've then gone to a hostile environment in Grenoble. There's been an incredible atmosphere. The French have been on ever increasing form over the championship and they've beaten them by a point and that's the reason England haven't won the championship it's the reason France have got the grand slam so I don't think there's a need for a for, for a major inquiry um, because some of those players will wear that scar deeply and it'll make them the players they are to go for that World Cup in 2021
2: Nick hi it's Rob here um, Hi Rob I, I mean I know what Grenoble is like a fantastic place for the girls to play that atmosphere must have been amazing but then Looking at the uh Italy Scotland conditions at the weekend. Oh, not not quite the same, which to be fair to the girls, doesn't really give them much of a chance to to put on a show. Um you know, no. surely they there must be a better better playing standards of conditions for the girls to play in than that that than they had there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it, and it sort of that's attached to a, a bit of a wider question for me, you know, about the priorities that are being put on these games by nations, by, by by governing bodies, however it works, because, you know, we had the England women's match um, was doubled with uh, the under-20s uh, on Friday night up in Coventry. Now, the England women's side is the senior side. Now, they were the curtain raiser for the under-20s game. Um, not only that, but with the under-20s game at 7.30 or 8 o'clock, whatever it was, the women's game was a kick-off at 530 at the Rico in coventry which uh, you know is okay on the one hand you could argue a family friendly time but on the other it's slap bang in the middle of the rush hour um you know in a place that that is is not necessarily the easiest to get to with all the roads clogging up and and this sort of thing is is beginning to become an issue and yeah you you have then a terrible choice of venue out in italy where the, the surface is is god awful and and they can't really perform terribly well and and this side of it needs looking at i actually you know, went on social media, or was on Twitter after the the game in Grenoble and, you know, they set a a world record for the number of people at a women's international, which is fantastic. Now, the amount of people that watch and support, you know, or even play rugby, uh, you know, over here in England is, is absolutely huge. So what is it that's stopping people getting out and supporting the women's game? And, you know, I had some people come back to that. It created quite a bit of debate and saying, look, there's a limited amount of time I have in my life. I will get to watch Leicester Tigers or whoever it is. I might get to an international here and there. You know, looking at the women's game, it, it falls down my list of priorities. There's still a big amount of people out there that think the quality's poor. Now, yes, we could do with more matches that are of a higher quality, but you cannot argue with that set-piece set event that was in Grenoble. You can't argue with the World Cup final and, and arguably the semis as well. Um, and so there are some fantastic games. The women's skill, you know, the women's skills are much higher, but they are being hamstrung by the scheduling, by the choice of venues, um, and, and whether unions are even putting them first.
1: Nick, thank you very much. Take care. No problem. Cheers. Uh, Nick probably couldn't say this, but that decision to prioritise over a junior age group side, is b- it's absolute b- uh, I don't know if you're allowed to say that, but I just have. Uh, and that sort of thing is avoidable, shouldn't happen, and it just needs a bit more forethought. I've no idea why that occurred, but come on, it really, in this day and age, is not something that should happen. It can be avoided... And please, let's not put even further impediments in the way of growing a part of the game, which is a big and expanding part of the game, and in the end will ensure the wider rugby's acceptance and growth.
2: Yeah, and it's you know there's television to be thought of there as well, which is why sometimes they're put on as double headers. But but actually, also think about taking the women's game to parts of the country on its own. That's rugby heartlands Absolutely. down to the southwest or you know, wherever, and, and just, it, it, I mean, France do have a massive support in certain parts of the country, and Grenoble is, is a fantastic example of that for the women's game. Um, and look, the women's game is growing, but you're right, a few issues to well, solve. Well, what crowd
1: would there have been at Gloucester?
2: Well, ex- well, exactly, or down in, down in Cornwall. Exeter,
1: yeah, absolutely. Time now to sum up. It's been, as always, an interesting tournament, and that's the great thing about the Six Nations, it never turns out, as you predict. There's always a surprise. If you're English, it happened to be. The joke was on you this time. Let's just go player of the tournament. That's a, that's a hard one, actually. Yeah, You probably uh, have to say Sexton, I think. In terms well, I, of...
2: I, I think Sexton or, or um, Connor Murray. But I think Sexton is now becoming such a linchpin of, of the team and, and making su- such big calls the whole time. Um, and, and he had the moment of the tournament. Whatever you say, oh. you know, drop goals, believe it or not, not that easy from 45 yards towards the end of a game. Oh, well, you did one. Um, well. I remember but, that. You know that. But it was, a, it was a, a moment of absolute brilliance.
1: But also, within that move, his confidence to do the cross kick, which yeah. could have effectively ended the game, yeah. had the ball been turned over, was not only there, but the execution was there. And that brought them significant territory, which they might not have got into drop goal range and he' not done that so that is another factor well, that of, was that of was that.
2: another piece of unbelievable brilliance yeah. because they'd been stuck in their own half for about the first 25 phases or even longer they yeah. couldn't get out of their own half yeah. and he, and he decided that was the only way they mm. could
1: actually make ground to try and get up there a uh, match of the tournament I suppose it depends whether you're talking about the excitement of you know seesaw and balancing last minute or absolute quality from one side I, It's always difficult, this.
2: Well, I mean, I was in Murrayfield and and although I was English, sat watching uh, the atmosphere at Murrayfield and, and, you know, we've both been on the receiving end of of something up there. And when it's rocking and it's special, that first half, Scotland against England, um, and the second half continued. England came back at Scotland quite hard in the second half, but um, I I thought that was a a fantastic – it was Murrayfield – Rocking And for the tournament, you know, we need Murrayfield and Cardiff, whether we like it or not, we need those places to be really rocking.
1: Through very gritted teeth, uh, I'm going to uh, agree with you, actually. Uh, It was a special atmosphere. It wasn't nice, obviously, if you're English, but uh, that's the way things go. Biggest surprise of the tournament, I'm going to answer this, was England's poor form over a continued uh, period of time. I just didn't expect that to happen. Um, In the manner it happened, in the way that the games were lost, very disappointing. As I say, we've got all the comments at the start of the podcast as to what can be put right. I don't think uh, the difficulties are insurmountable. I think there is time, but they have to be solved fairly soon and we're running out of them. Uh, Best try. Well, there's some good ones. Most
2: of them were against England. <laughs> one of the ones yeah. that I can remember, there's a there's a few up at Merrifield, but but we've talked too much. Finn Russell talked, off his left talk, hand was pretty... We've talked too much about that one. I think we've... that uh, When you've got a tight-head prop who, who does a, a sort of reverse inside or outside ball with his back to the defence to put Bundayaki through against England who then puts Stander in and scores against the post mm. um, in the middle of the first half when Ireland were really rampant. Um, I mean, that was a brilliant piece of play by a tight end prop and not many of them can do that
1: absolutely that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact thank you to my co-host Rob Andrew and as always my producer Abby Patterson remember please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it will help more people find us we'll be back next week that's the end of the Six Nations congratulations to Ireland for now goodbye